So you're here, and uh, we're about to start a brand new series. Uh, very exciting. We're starting our uh, series in Romans. Uh, this, this, it's going to be our summer thing. We're going to go up until about Labor Day. Um, if you are an old school church person, you've probably uh, been, ex- you've been pumped about, about Romans for a long time. Uh, it's a, in fact, it's really kind of the, the basis of Protestant faith in, in some ways. Uh, it was Martin Luther's deep study of Romans that really triggered the Protestant Reformation. It was his recognition of uh, salvation by faith, um, justification by faith, that uh, triggered all the, the, the reforms and the changes and, and really has led us to where we are today. You've probably, if you're an old school church person, you've probably uh, spent a lot of time studying Romans. Well, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this uh, will be a fresh look, a fresh encounter with Romans, if you're an old school church person. So, uh, maybe allow you to read and see it in an entirely different, well, not entirely, but very different way. A way, pro, uh, I hope, that will be somewhat similar to how it was heard when it was, uh, when it was first proclaimed, when it was first read and taught, um, when, Paul, when Paul first wrote it. Uh, if you're not an old school church person and Romans is, you're like, ah, well, you know, the great news is, is this is one of the densest and most challenging and difficult and boring books in the Bible. So, couple months, just don't come to church, just sleep at home, make sure to keep tithing, that's important. Uh, I'll see you, I'll see you in September. Just kidding. Uh, actually, I hope that what, what, I hope as we go through that we'll be able to open this up and, and let you see Romans in a really fresh and exciting way and see how excited Paul is. He's writing it. And, and maybe even start to see the God that Paul sees in, a, in this radical, exciting new way. Now, uh, the series is titled Paul's Gospel. Paul's Gospel. And that might sound a little weird. I mean, shouldn't we be learning about the gospel or Jesus' gospel? Well, I'm calling it Paul's gospel not because of any particular, but because that's what Paul calls it. And, and I want us to start with the very end of Romans. This is uh, the very end. And I want you to hear what Paul says. He says this. He's closing out the letter. He says, May the glory be to God who can strengthen you with my good news and the message that I preach, my gospel, the message that I preach about Jesus Christ. He can strengthen you with the announcement of the secret that was kept quiet for a long time. Uh, the New King James says they're kept quiet from the beginning, from the very beginning, or the, the beginning of the, of, of the world, or something like that. The Greek doesn't quite support that, but uh, I, I, it, it does kind of feel that way. It's like this God's been like holding his cards real close. Now that secret is revealed through what the prophets wrote. It is made known to the Gentiles or the nations in order to lead to their faithful obedience based on the command of the eternal God. Before we jump in, I want to give you a little background. Paul's probably writing from a place called Corinth. Uh, He's probably writing right before he heads to Jerusalem on his third missionary uh, journey. So Paul's been doing the church planning thing for, for quite a while. And it's at this time that he writes this letter to the Romans. Why? Well, because eventually, he's writing a letter to the church in Rome from Corinth. Eventually, his plan is to go to Jerusalem, and then he wants to get all the way to Spain, all the way to the western reaches of the, of the Roman Empire. That's his goal. And he thinks that what he would like to do is stop in, stop off in Rome on his way to Spain to plant churches and to share the gospel. And uh, he's probably hoping, he's probably hoping that when he stops in Rome, that he can find uh, some, you know, Christians of means to maybe support him on his way. 
And so he's writing to every Christian in Rome. By this time, there's quite a few. He's writing, this probably about 50, 55 AD, somewhere in there. And so there's, there's lots of Christians out there. He knows some of them, and he's writing to all of them. Why? Because he wants them to know that when he gets there, that he's a legit apostle. He's a, he's a true Christian. He's not, he's not coming up with something weird and different. The things that he's telling them are the same kind of things that they hear from the apostles who, who lived with Jesus. And so he, he kind of wants them to, to know that he's a good guy, that, he, that the stuff that he's saying isn't crazy. Now, you notice that. My good news, the message I preach about Jesus. Um, some even in, uh, translate Jesus Christ. Instead of saying Christ, they say Jesus Messiah or Messiah Jesus because Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, it, Christ is his title. He's the Messiah. But notice that weird thing. This is Paul saying, this is what I teach. You guys like that, uh, that Rachel Maddow? Have you seen her? Rachel Maddow? What about the Sean Hannity? Yeah, okay, I got some Sean Hannity fans. Cool, cool. I don't, uh, I don't like to watch the news on television. I like to read it. Um, but I've noticed, I, I noticed that uh, when you're watching the, the cable news ratings, that uh, Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow always win. Millions of people tune in to watch Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow. Why? Huh, interesting. I don't know. Well, like, it occurred to me, it occurred to me uh, when I was reflecting on the greatness of uh, Tony Romo. You guys know Tony Romo? Where's Tony? Oh, yeah, and Chris Collinsworth. Chris Collinsworth and Tony Romo. Chris Collinsworth and Tony Romo are color commentators for the NFL. I don't like watching football very much. Uh, it's too slow. There's too many commercials. Um, there's too many. I, I love the idea of instant replay, but it happens way too often. If you're going to force me to sit down and listen or watch an NFL game, you'd better make sure that on the color commentary is either Chris Collins or Tony Romo, because I will not listen to anybody else. Why? Okay, let's just say that you're forced to listen to, what's the other Cowboys quarterback that does this? What's his name? Troy Aikman. What a hack. I mean, are you serious? This guy, he's like, he's like the reason they're winning is because they're playing harder. You're like, Whoa. do you have a PhD in football? Really? They're playing harder? I just see, I see a lot of effort from these guys. Like, hmm. Thanks, Troy. Really insane. Got hit too many times in the pocket, brother, during your career. No, the difference is when Tony, and up till, up till this last season, I didn't listen to anyone except for Chris Collinsworth. But Tony Romo bursts on the scene. I think he's even better than Chris Collinsworth. He was not a great quarterback. Well, he was pretty good. He was a good quarterback, amazing color commentator. Why? Why? You're listening. And like after the play, or even before the play sometimes, Romo's like, now I want you to watch that left linebacker. He's going to shift over because what he's worried about is whether or not, you know, he's analyzing the play even before it begins. And then when it happens afterwards, he says, now I want you to see this move right here and this. He's, he's giving you an analysis of everything that's just taken place. Now to me, I'm just sitting there and I see a whole bunch of big, large men hitting each other. He sees like a chess game and then he opens it up to you. He's like, welcome to, welcome to my world. And it's really, it's, it's, it's interesting to me. Instead of just seeing the red team versus the blue team, I start to see the intricacies of what's happening. It makes the game, it makes sports more interesting to me. That's the job of the color commentator. 
Notice that Chris Collinsworth and Tony Romo don't do this alone. They got another guy. There's Al Michaels there. He's the play-by-play guy. He tells you the facts. So-and-so ran for eight yards, whatever. But it's the color commentary that explains the meaning. This is, I figured out, that's why Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow are so popular. Because they don't tell you the news. They assume that you already sort of know it. They tell you what it means. They're the ones who explain, like, oh, this is, what, this is how bad this is for Trump. This is how good this is for the GOP. It's like they're basically like, you know, if you're on the right side, you're like, go, Sean, go, team. If you're on the left side, like, go, Rachel, yay. But you're, you're, you're getting the analysis, the examination, the meaning of what's going on behind politics. And that's what's interesting. That's what's fascinating. Who cares what the facts are? I want to know what they mean. When Paul says, my gospel, the message I preach, he's saying, look, we all agree on the the fundamentals probably. But I'm going to tell you what it means. I'm going to give you the analysis, the examination, the behind the scenes. Paul's gospel explains what the coming of Jesus means. Now, that might not be that surprising. But Paul thinks that something really special has taken place. And I want you to go back to the text and look at this. The announcement of the secret that was kept quiet for a long time, now that secret is revealed through what the prophets wrote. If you go to the New King James, uh, you're going to get, instead of secret, you're going to get mystery. And uh, the Greek there is musterion. It's etymologically connected to mystery. But in our ears in English, mystery kind of sounds like what you expect when you watch an episode of NCIS. There's a dead body. Who done it? Let's use the science. Okay, now we know. That's kind of how we hear the word mystery. Uh, mysterion really has more of a, a sense of like, of like, uh, it's like, it's like God's at the table, right? It's a game of Texas Hold'em. Um, God's got his two cards. There's the flop. We see uh, what's on the table, but we don't know what's in God's hands. Okay. And so, you know, you see the five after the, 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 what is it, the something and then the river. So there's five cards on the table, and, and we're wondering what God's got in God's pocket. You know, has he got pocket aces? That's the, the idea. It's a secret. He's keeping it from us. And then suddenly, bam, it's revealed. It's been announced. What, what, what is it? I mean, what's he talking about? What's the secret? Anybody know? What's the next slide? The earth is flat. You heard about these people, the flat earthers? Yeah, yeah. So uh, they, they're, here's the deal. They, they tune in to, to Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow, and they're, they're like, ah, this is nonsense. I don't believe any of this. What else are they lying to me about? At a certain point, they get to the, like, oh, I know. They're lying to me about the moon landings, the shape of the universe, all that stuff. It's all fake. I actually have a guy that I went to high school with who's a flat earther. He really believes this. He's dumb as rocks. Um, but I, he really is. He's, he's, he's not bright. Uh, and he's listening to some wrong people on YouTube. Uh, anyway, the original flat earthers were uh, the people who, were, who doubted doubted that, uh, that the, the universe didn't revolve around the earth, right? Back in the ancient days, they, there was a guy, Ptolemy. I think I have an example of Ptolemy's solar system. It's something you can't see it real well. It's, on, it's the one that's on the left. 
Uh, Ptolemy's solar system, this is what everyone thought, Earth is at the center of the solar system, right? And uh, there's these, so Earth is the center of the universe. And then, so all the stuff you see in the sky, um, what we think of as stars, planets, the moon, sun, all of that, it's all going around us. The question is how, right? And so scientists, ancient scientists, are the closest thing, they were philosophers really, but they would study, they would observe, and then they would try and come up with these these very confusing systems with bizarre circles that were constantly moving so that they could predict the location of the lights in the sky every night. And if you see a pretty complicated Ptolemaic version, it's not bad. They did a pretty good job. They had like circles within circles within circles, and and they kind of of developed it so that they almost predicted it pretty, pretty well. But over hundreds and thousands of years, uh, the, uh, the observations kept coming. They kept coming, and, and they were just always off a little bit, and sometimes a lot. And if, if you know, the universe really is operating this way, then how can it just be moving off? How can, how can these things not work exactly right? Well, it, the, the data was just accumulating and accumulating until finally uh, Copernicus had this radical idea. Wait a minute. What if the sun is at the middle of the universe. Whoa. And he, I mean, total flat earth there, man. Just going against the grain on that one. But then he develops these models. You can actually have physical models where you can actually, you know, spin them, and you can see that, wow, that is surprisingly accurate in the way that it predicts what we're going to see each night. And if you, you, know, you sketch what you see in the sky each day and each night, and you look at his model, and you realize... It's right on in a way that the, the Ptolemaic model just doesn't work. Uh, in the 1960s, this guy Thomas Kuhn wrote a book called uh, The Nature and Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he uses this example of a sea change where, you know, before everything was going on, it was happening, and then suddenly all this data is too much, and suddenly, boom, this new idea comes in and changes everything, just radically upends the way that we think about everything. And part of that, notice this, I mean, you know, up until Copernicus, and really, and then, of course, Galileo, humans, we thought we were the center of the universe, You and me, you know, we, we grow up and we know that we're just like a little speck and there's this, you know, these galaxies and Pleiades and whatnot. But up until Copernicus, every human being that we know of thought that they were the center of the universe. And so it wasn't just like this, oh, you know, we have a new model that tells us where the stars are going to be. No. It was a complete revolution in the way that human beings even conceive of ourselves. Kuhn calls it, he he came up with a name, he says it's a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift. You had this way of seeing the universe, and it wasn't working. Things were wrong, it didn't make sense. Bam, some new thing comes in, and it completely shifts the way you think about everything. You're sitting at the card table, and, and all the cards are on the table, and then God lays them down. The secret is revealed. And everything you thought, you were, you were across the way, you were, uh, I think, I bet he's got pocket jacks. Yeah, that's definitely it. Okay, you had your opinions about what God, he puts it down, he, he reveals the secret, you're like, no, that's impossible. I just lost a bunch of money. 
A paradigm shift happened. Second thing, your note sheets. The coming of Jesus is so shocking that it brings a new paradigm in thinking about God. Well, okay, yeah, I guess. The coming of Jesus is so shocking. Uh, is it? I mean, isn't that kind of like the thing that we talk about all the time? Like, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Is, is, it that, is that weird? Is it that radical? Is it that crazy? Maybe. Let's look at, uh, let's, let's jump back. Let's go to the very beginning of Romans. This is uh, verses 2 to 6 of the first chapter. Okay, God promised this good news. Good news, gospel. God promised this gospel, you know, Paul's gospel, the gospel, about his son ahead of time, beforehand, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. His son was descended from David. Okay, now, in the ancient world, especially in uh, Jews of the first century, so far, so good. Jews of the first century assumed that, yeah, okay, sure, right. Uh, the Messiah is going to come. He's been predicted by the prophets. He's got to be in the line of David. That makes sense. Now, Paul's going to go off the rails. He was publicly identified as God's son with power through his, does I get that right? With power through his resurrection from the dead, which was based on the spirit of holiness. There, I think I have it differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was publicly identified as God's son in power through the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. I'm sorry, the Greek here is super weird. Um, Paul has this penchant for like these extremely long sentences. Um, so I've, in, I've tinkered here to make it a little more, uh, make it make more sense in English. Um, but yeah, so it's a little strange. Anyway, uh, this son is Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received God's grace and our appointment to be apostles. This was all to bring all the Gentiles to faithful obedience for his name's sake. You who are called by Jesus Christ are also included among these Gentiles. From verse 4 to verse 6, Paul goes in a blink crazy town. Uh, he says things that are absolutely absurd. Um, the first, publicly identified as God's son. Here's the deal. Uh, sometimes uh, translations say made manifest or revealed. Um, God's son shouldn't need to be revealed if you're in the ancient world, right? God, it should be obvious. Here's what the ancient people were expecting. They were expecting uh, some guy to come in and use his God magic to destroy the Romans. He'd be like, you know, we, we, like basically Captain Marvel, um, only male and Jewish. And, and he'd, and then the Romans would be wiped out. There would be no one going around being like, you think that's God's son? No, no, he's that. That's definitely it. And his power is the power of violent destruction and, 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 and awesomeness, right? That's what they expected. Paul says, publicly identified in God's Son in power. Power, what kind of power? Through the spirit of holiness. Uh, it's not Holy Spirit, but obviously Paul's referring to the Holy Spirit here. Uh, what? So he's revealed as God's Son what? Because he's really good? What? what? Then, by his resurrection from the dead. Wait, 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 wait. Impossible. No. The guy's going to win all those battles. He's not going to get killed. He's certainly not going to be tortured to death for blasphemy and sedition. What kind of winner is that? And after he gets tortured to death for blasphemy and sedition, he's not going to be raised from that. That's bonkers. It's nonsense. What kind of Messiah is this? Oh, it's Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, our King. And what does he bring? He brings grace. 
How about the rule of God? That's what I was looking for. What? He brings, now he's bringing all the Gentiles? He, he's, so the, originally, the Jew, what they thought was going to happen was, so, you know, Captain Marvel, Messiah, comes down, nukes the Roman governor uh, with his God powers, and then uh, just basically, like, is raised up, and all the nations are like, dude, we'd better go hang out with that guy, because otherwise we're going to get destroyed. And so they would all just rush to him. And if they didn't, he was going to go conquering, bringing all the power with him, and just, just subjugating nation after nation, and being like, now you worship Yahweh. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're going to bring the Gentiles to faithful obedience by talking to them? In uh, 1894, there was a a gathering of, of the world's best urban planners. And the problem they were facing was this, horse and buggy. In, uh, in 1894 in London, the city of London, which was at the time, and I guess maybe still is, one of the, the greatest and largest cities in the West. At the time, uh, in order for everybody to eat and get where they needed to be, there had to be about 50,000 horses in the city at, the, at, at a time, 50,000. 50, um, they would, you know, be carrying buggies. People would be on horseback. They would be dragging wagons. 50,000. You may not know this, uh, but it, uh, the average horse produces about 15 to 35 pounds of poo every day. True fact. In 1894, in London, they did not have um, people who clean streets. And it wasn't just London. I mean, New York was in the same situation. And so basically, so in, 19, in 1894, the New York Times, the headline reads, it reads, in 50 years, London will be submerged in manure. Because <laughs> they're looking, they're saying how many people, are, industrial revolution's taking place, everyone's moving to the cities, right? And in order for people to be there, you've got to have horses. Horses are mag- majestic creatures and capable of creating a lot of methane, and they do, and, and now you've got to deal with it. Big, big problem. In fact, the uh, urban planners, the best they could come up with was something like a sort of public uh, street, street sweeping. <coughs> but that only kind of worked because you still have to find a place to put all the poo once you've picked it up. It's like, oh, not fun to live in the 19th century. Tough, tough century. Really gross. Uh, so finally, uh, they, they just gave up. They said, it's, there's nothing we can do. Cities can't get any bigger than this. We're just going to have to send people away, right? Right? No. What happened? The Model T. I know, I know. It, it produces CO2, which is much worse. I know, it's causing the climate change. I get that. But here's the deal. Compared to, like, swimming through horse manure, this is a pretty good deal. Not bad. Uh, By 1925, so only 20 years after the New York Times predicted uh, the submersion of all the major cities in in horse manure, um, the problem was gone because of the mass production of the automobile. Now, I want you to think about this. You're sitting there, 1894, 95. The biggest problem 
in the world is this. You have no idea what's coming next. The automobile happens. Suddenly, all the stuff you were worried about here, it's like, that's not, it's inconsequential. It doesn't matter anymore. Who cares? And moreover, the problems and possibilities now, now that the car is here, are just radically different. Right? What was possible is now, like, completely changed. In fact, by a picture here of the 1950s, Eisenhower, um, you know, just another 25 years, uh, Eisenhower uh, institutes the interstate system in the United States of America, the very first time that r- average normal citizens who weren't wealthy would be able to travel wherever they wanted. It, this, you know, if you think about it, it's kind of weird because we're just used to it, but really it's only been 70 years since it was possible for normal people to go from A to B, to, to, to move from here to there, to settle down, and because of the telephone, be able to talk to the people they left behind. That This was unfathomable in 1894. In 1894, the only thing on the horizon was how we get rid of the horse poo. In 1955, you're looking at, and it's a completely different vista. Uh, untold, imaginable things have, have, have changed, and now new possibilities, fresh possibilities for human life have been unleashed by innovation, by things you never saw coming. This is exactly how Paul sees the death and resurrection of Jesus. Before Jesus came, here all, we got all these problems. How are we going to conquer all the, the Gentile nations? What are we going to do about the Roman Empire? How do we deal? How, are we going to keep our, our, our cult system going with the sacrifices? How do we obey the law? How do we do right by God? They have all these questions, and they're so concerned, they're so miserable, and they don't know what to do with it. That there's no hope for the future. Bam! The, Jesus comes totally out of the blue. Like, what the heck is this? We're gonna, he's di- dead and raised, and now he gave us his spirit. This is mind body. And suddenly, if you take that seriously, now we can look forward and we can see an unbelievable future, an unbelievable set of possibilities for all the stuff that we were worrying about is completely transformed. Nothing is the same. It's the third thing you're noticing is that Messiah's death and resurrection changes the way we think about everything. This is a paradigm shift in theology. And Romans, the letter to the Romans, is where Paul lays it all out. He says, here is how the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah of God, impacts everything. It impacts uh, the way we think about sin, the way we think about faith, the way we think about grace, the way we think about Jews, the way we think about not Jews, the way we think about the future, the way we think about the Bible, the Old Testament, the way we think. He goes through every single thing, and we're going to go through those over the next you know, nine weeks or whatever. We're going to see, we're going to see how every single thing gets radically reconfigured because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the coming of the Messiah of God. And I think as we do, we're going to see that every single one of those things has a dramatic impact on how we live and think today. Maybe because we haven't been paying attention very well. And what Paul's, the Paul's gospel, his good news, is going to be good news to us. And it's going to have some very concrete, real impact on what we do and say and think. But in the meantime, we do need to think about just one thing. The reason that Jesus was so shocking 
when he came was because people had already decided what God could do and what God couldn't do. Chances are everybody here, whether you want to admit it or not, have some very deep-felt, deep-set opinions about what God can do and what God can't do. The thing we learn from the coming of the Jewish Messiah, from Jesus, is that what we think about God, God loves to blow up. God loves to take our preconceived notions about what he can and can't do, how he does and does not operate, where he can and can't go, and he likes to explode it. And so for this week, as we get ready to jump all the way into Romans, I would just like to throw out a couple of questions, a couple of challenges for us to think about as we deal with our own um, sort of faith uh, place, as we think about the paradigm-shifting God. The first question, the first question I want you to ask is, when was a time God did or allowed something you could not believe? Most of the atheists I know, or are, well, the ex-Christian atheists that I know, um, lost faith or came to a place of, of a death of faith when? When God did or allowed something they could not. You think, I mean, this happened a ton after the Holocaust. In the wake of um, the Holocaust and World War II, a lot of people said, God couldn't let people kill six million Jews. They're his chosen people. If that's, he, no, 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 no. I, I can't believe in that God. By the way, if that bothers you, we did talk about both uh, genocide and um, hell a couple of weeks back. Check out those, those sermons. Hopefully those will address some of those issues. Now that's the bad way. There's also been times probably in your life where, especially if you're now a church person, where God did something you couldn't believe and it was great. <laughs> It wasn't like he allowed the Holocaust. It was like he created Israel. He did something rad, something you could not have expected. You were like, you're like, whoa, that came out of left field. And suddenly, usually that's a spur for people to come to faith. They're like, wait, God's real. I just experienced it. Um, I know a lot of times now, uh, it's, I, I talk to people in you know, regular life. You're looking at making your bills work and, and making your, your job you know, pay, and you lose the job, and everything's up in flux, and your reputation's tarnished, and, and, and then suddenly, bam, God does something that just shifts it all and gives you everything back and more, and you're like, whoa, wow, I, I, I should not, not trust you. Think about how that changed your perspective of who God is and how God works. Uh, second question. Uh, what do you believe God can't or won't do? And this is in the present tense. Um, I'll be honest. I don't think, I don't think God is going to like say, make me levitate. You know, like, uh, but like Chris Angel, Chris Angel, the world's greatest musician or magician. I don't think that's going to happen. I'm not. I, I, I think God probably could. I don't think He's going to. Now. The reason I bring that question up is because it, it starts to get you to think about what do you think God's after? What is God trying to accomplish? What does God want? Because God's desires and wants and needs, and, and those are going to impact what he can't or won't do, right? I don't think that God's interested in making me float for no reason. 
That just seems silly. And so I don't think God's going to do that. But there's probably things that are more significant, more telling, that I don't think God's going to do. There's probably relationships in my life that are dead and broken and destroyed that I don't think God's going to resurrect. Right? And there's probably places in my life, things that about myself that I hate and despise, but don't think God's really going to change. People in my life that I desperately desire to see in communion with God, but God's probably not going to draw them to faith. We all have those mountains that we don't think God's going to move. And what are yours? Because the coming of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, turned everything upside down. It blew God out of the box. Everything that the Jews thought about God was wrong. Not everything, but a lot of what they thought was wrong. And he revealed himself in a fresh way. He can do that here now for you. Third and last, where won't God go? Where won't God go? What restrictions do you place? Where, where are the boundaries that you have in your life? You're like, God, I don't want you to show up in there. That's, that's off limits to you. That's mine. And I don't want you to touch it, because if you do, you might wreck it. Uh, yeah, and, and, and you're right. He, he probably will wreck it. And it probably will be super uncomfortable. And it probably will be super surprising and frustrating and dismaying until it becomes incredible and wonderful and glorious and, re- and healed and, and right. But if you're putting those barriers up and you're saying, God, you don't go there, then you have no idea what might happen if you do. Final thought. Um, this summer, and, and when we're talking about Paul's gospel, Paul's gospel is all about opening up new horizons for who God is and what he can do. And what I would like to see is each week, I would like us to, to, to dream bigger about who God is and what God can do. Be like, wow, maybe God can do X. Maybe God can do this. If he's able to do this, then he can do more. And, and as we see how Paul rethinks everything in light of the coming of the death and resurrected Messiah, we too can say the coming of the death and uh, dead and resurrected Messiah can shake and turn our, our lives upside down too. And the question is, how much are we willing to put out there in faith? And how much do we need to hold to ourselves because, ah, oh, I don't want God to touch it. Because I think God is just looking to radically transform this church, our people, and people we haven't even met yet. Let's pray. Gracious God, we um, confess that as big as we imagine you to be, you're infinitely bigger. That as loving as we imagine you to be, you're infinitely more loving that as gracious as we imagine you to be, you are infinitely more gracious. God, we confess um, that you do roar like a a lion, that your power is incredible. And, And Lord, we just ask to have Paul's eyes to see afresh how powerful you are, how you can turn things upside down, how you can reveal yourself in surprising ways to be what we never imagined you could be. God, give us Paul's vision, Paul's imagination as we enter into and live with Romans uh, for the next few weeks. And most of all, God, I just ask for you to enter into our hearts in places uh, that we're afraid that you might go and begin shaking things up and turning them upside down. 
all to your glory and all to the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.